Good morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. I'll be asking you to stand in just a moment. Today, we're looking at a passage of Scripture that pictures the church saying together, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of God be done. There's probably nothing more unsettling, more confusing for Christians than trying to figure out what the will of God is. A lot of you are coming in today having quandaries, opportunities, and even troubles, and you're like, I'm not sure what to do. Number one issue, number one issue and crossroads, really, that a lot of Christians come to is, which way do I go? Which way do I go? Several years back, we were visiting my in-laws in Tennessee, and we kept passing billboards to a, a, a kind of an amusement attraction type place, and Angela said, I've never been able to go there. I've always wanted to go there since I was a little girl. I said, well, let's go. So we went to the Lost Sea in Stillwater, Tennessee, way off the beaten path. I'm guessing you haven't been there. Out in the boonies, kind of iffy. Basically, it's an underground cavern of basically a mile down, and at the at the end of these pathways is a lost sea filled with really, really big trout, okay? And it, there's not a lot of light there, and it's a bit iffy. Like, literally, you drive up, and you're thinking, all these people are going into a hole in the ground. Are they coming out? And the guy leading us down the pathways was taking us down these narrow, winding pathways, and it was pretty dark in there, and I remember I just kept thinking to myself, and I was honestly a bit, um, a bit nervous, a bit claustrophobic, and I remember thinking to myself, where is he leading us? And what's he going to do to us when we get there? Alice in Wonderland, Alice came to a fork in the road, and all of a sudden panic struck her. She's frozen because she can't decide which way to go. And she lifts her eyes to heaven, looking for guidance. Her eyes do not find God, but the, the Cheshire cat leering from his perch in the tree above. And she asks the cat, which way shall I go? And the cat says, that depends. On what, Alice replied? On your destination, the cat said. On where you're going. Where are you going? And Alice replies, I don't know. To which the cat says, the grin getting ever wider, well, in that case, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. A lot of people don't know where they're going, and it doesn't really matter which path they take. But it matters to the Christian. It matters to the Christian because every Christian has a destiny in the kingdom of God. We are a pilgrim people. We are not just living here for a few years and then what might happen. We know what is going to happen. We know that our destination matters. We know we are citizens of heaven, but while we're here on earth, we have this quandary, which way do I go? What does God want me to do? What's his will for me? And while it is often difficult to discern the will of God, I think it is even more difficult to actually do the will of God once you know what you are to do. Let's just say that you're convinced of 
a course of action that you say, this is the will of God for me. And you find out it's going to be really difficult. You find out that there's going to be obstacles in the way, there's going to be roadblocks, and even it will be dangerous for you to proceed. What do you do? This is where we find Paul and the church when we're here in Acts 21. I want to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. We see Paul and the church trying to figure out the will of God. Acts 21, beginning at verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we were greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, you'd have your way in our hearts. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that by your spirit, through your word, you speak to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we hear the word, we would be obedient in your strength to do what it says. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul has a tearful goodbye with the Ephesian elders. You'll notice that in verse 1. When we had parted from them, he is saying goodbye to his beloved friends in Ephes from Ephesus, and he departs with his companions on a boat. He travels to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And Luke describes some of the stops along the way. Each stop took about a day and Paul met with believers in each location. But he also was served twice with warnings not to go on to Jerusalem. 
And then we see the scene culminating with the church saying together, let the will of the Lord be done. Now this passage is a straight narrative. It does not teach any doctrine. It does not have any imperatives. It's not saying you need to do this or that. And I've reminded you uh, many times as we've gone through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, that Acts is not prescriptive. It doesn't tell you what to do as a Christian. It is descriptive. It tells us what God did in and through his witnesses for his purposes in that time. And there are plenty of things we can learn by way of example. There's just no doctrines and no imperatives in this passage today where we would say, wow, we have to do it just like that. But what we see by way of example is what it looks like to seek the will of God and then to yield to God's revealed will. Verse 1, they part from the Ephesian elders. Literally, that, that word part, parted sounds kind of light, like, hey, see you later, and you know, see you on Wednesday or whatever, like we would say to our friends today. The word parted literally means to rip apart, to tear apart. And so Paul is saying we had to tear ourselves away from each other. Think about when you were engaged to be married and you were hanging out with your fiance and, and you're like, uh, I just don't want to say goodbye. I want to stay with you the whole time. And, and you have to like tear yourselves apart to, to uh, wait until the next time you see one another. Or you have a, a relative, a beloved relative who comes from far away and stays with you. And they don't overstay their welcome. And they say, we need to leave now. And you're like, please don't go. Stay longer. And you literally have to rip, rip yourselves apart from each other because you love each other so much. This is the idea when Paul says we parted from them. They, they had difficulty in doing so. They, they were anguished over having to say goodbye. Extreme love, extreme devotion, extreme care for each other in the body of Christ. Very close, close relationships. Paul had spent over three years with these elders, they had done life together. He had appointed them. He had discipled them. So he leaves, and they set sail, and they go to a place called Kos, which is a small island out in the Aegean Sea, and it was best known for the school of medicine founded there by Hippocrates in the 5th century B.C. They go then on to Rhodes the next day, another 60 miles, and the harbor there at Rhodes had once been the site of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a statue, a 110-foot statue called the Colossus, not the roller coaster. It was a statue dedicated to, to worship the sun god Helios. And it only lasted 56 years, by the way. It was built in 300 B.C., and in 56 years later, it was ruined by an earthquake, destroyed by an earthquake, which is what happens when mankind tries to set up objects of worship to worship man, they come to ruin. They go to Rhodes, and from there they go to Patara, and they were on a 400-mile voyage at that point. It would have taken them three to five days, and they, they then, verse 2, find a ship going to Phoenicia. These were not cruise ships, by the way. These were ships that were taking cargo from city to city, and so they're coming on board, and they set sail. They, verse 3, they go past Cyprus. They, they um, 
They have to land in Tyre because they're going to unload the cargo. And so verse 4 tells us what they did when they were in Tyre. They sought out the disciples. Very strong word there. The verb means that, that Paul searched for the Christians. So like he got, he got to the port and they got off the ship and he's like, where's the believers? I need to find them. And so he's looking for them. He finds them. They stay for a whole week. Now, whereas they were very good friends with the Ephesian elders, these would presumably have been people that he was meeting maybe for the first time. And you know what happens when you meet believers from basically anywhere and you're like, we don't know each other, but we, we meet and, and you, your hearts get knit together with fellow believers to the point that maybe a few days later, you're like feeling like you're saying goodbye to, to really, really close relatives. That's what happened here. They stay for seven days. Now, this group of people tell Paul through the Spirit, key phrase, through the Spirit, they're telling him something. They said, Paul, we know you're on your way to Jerusalem. You should not go. It's not good for you to go. Now, the interesting thing was that Paul had told the Ephesian elders that he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And now, this group of people are saying, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Now, when Paul was traveling through certain cities, he has already said that in every city, the Holy Spirit testifies that imprisonment basically awaits me in Jerusalem. But what happens is that as these believers find out what's going to happen to Paul, which is, it's going to happen. When he gets there, he's going to be put in jail. Their natural human concern leads them to tell him not to go and, and avoid the persecution. And it's kind of like saying, look, you're, you're going here and it's not going to be good, so why don't you not go because we love you and we don't want you to die. I remember my first missions trips. I went on um, two trips in a row. In 87 and 89, I went to Irian Jaya, Indonesia, a very remote part of the world. It was in New Guinea, and we were up in the highlands, and we were working with tribal peoples. And I remember my, my dear grandmother, Melvadine Mary Howell. Uh, I think she was four foot nine. Dear woman, I love her so much, and she loved Jesus. But she said to me, she goes, Mike, why are you going all that way to a, to a dangerous place to tell people about Jesus. Why don't you stay and tell people about Jesus here? And I said, Grandma, I love you, and I'll see you when I get back. And it, it, it actually was hard for me, because I thought, well, I, I respect my grandma, I love my grandma, but I'm convinced I'm supposed to go. And so I went, and it's, it's tough to hear something when you know you're supposed to do something else, and someone's telling you you shouldn't do this. This is what's happening to Paul. But they're doing it through the Spirit. And, and people might say, well, wait a minute, Paul is disobedient to the Holy Spirit here because through the Spirit they're telling him not to go. But see, they're, they're hearing from the Spirit that Paul's going to go into prison. They're kind of going off script and saying, now you shouldn't go as a result because the Holy Spirit never told Paul not to go. What we know about Paul is that he lived a life sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Just think about the record and what we've seen in Acts so far. Back in Acts 16, you see Paul being forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go preach in certain regions 
And he did not disobey the Holy Spirit. He didn't go. He wanted to go. He didn't go. Then you see, still in chapter 16, he was led by the Spirit of God to preach in Macedonia. He immediately obeys. Immediately goes. Paul has a pattern of obedience to the Spirit that makes it very unlikely that he was disobedient in this matter. The Holy Spirit never told Paul, you're not going to Jerusalem. Quite the contrary. In chapter 20, the Holy Spirit is warning Paul repeatedly of what would happen when he got there, though he never said, so therefore you shouldn't go. Just telling him what's going to happen. And by the way, in chapter 20, verse 24, we, we read this, that Paul said that he received his ministry from the Lord Jesus. Now the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, and the Holy Spirit is not going to tell Paul to, do some, to not do something that the Lord Jesus has told him to do. And Paul very clearly in chapter 19, verse 21, said, the Spirit has led me to go to Jerusalem. So he Verse 5 keeps going. So the people are saying, don't go. And verse 5, we departed and went on our journey. We kept going to, toward Jerusalem. Now the people in this place got to know him so well that not just the men of the place, but the women and the children, their wives and their children, went with them all the way to the ship. And it's a sweet, sweet picture here. It's a touching observation of how, how Paul really endeared himself to these whole families of believers while he was with them for one whole week. They kneel down on the beach together. And when they, when they kneel down on the beach, they pray. This is what believers are to do together. They're to pray, acknowledging the sovereignty of God, acknowledging their dependence upon him. And, and so they pray. And then they say goodbye, verse 6. They, they get on the ship and the rest of the people go home. Now, they, they finish the voyage from Tyre, and they arrive at Ptolemais, and they greet the brothers and stay with one, for one day. Verse 7, presumably to do the same things. Have fellowship, get in the word, prayer. And then, verse 8, they get to Caesarea, which is where the, the primary part of this passage happens. They make this 30-mile trip by boat to the, this beautiful port city of Caesarea. And they go to the house of Philip the evangelist. One of the seven, one of the, one of the proto-deacons that were chosen in Acts chapter 6 to wait on the tables, men full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, but they, did, they were chosen so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They go to Philip's house, he is called the evangelist. He is the bringer of good news. The only time this word is used in the book of Acts, he is the only person in scripture to ever be called the evangelist. Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. But here you have Philip and Paul. Paul is lodging at Philip's house. They were once enemies for the sake of the gospel when Paul was persecuting the church, and now they're fellow preachers of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Philip has four daughters who prophesied. We don't know what they said. We don't know how often they did. We do know that they did it on an ongoing basis as a ministry to the church because of the, the tenses of that word prophesied. But it's an important part of Luke's message that we come to again and again, where men, women, boys, girls, they're, they're all um, gifted to serve in the body of Christ, and God's grace upon women is shown here. Numerous women are responding to the gospel and are gifted to serve the body of Christ. 
Now, I would just say, if you're a man, a woman, boy, girl, and you're a believer, you've come to faith in Christ, then the question really is, how have you been gifted by God to serve the church, and are you, are you being sensitive to the Spirit in that regard and allowing the Spirit to use you in serving the church? You need to. Verse 10, they stayed many days there, and a, a, a prophet comes down from Judea, from Jerusalem, and his name is Agabus. And this Jerusalem prophet spends some time with Paul, really, for a second time. Paul is not just meeting him now. The first time Agabus had predicted a severe famine, chapter 11, this time he's predicting Paul's arrest. And he does so in a very unique way. Look at verse 11. He takes Paul's belt, and what he does is he ties up his own hands and feet. So you can imagine, he ties up his hands and feet. He hogties himself. It's like a rodeo here. He's tying up his hands and his feet with this belt. He's basically, you know, twisting himself into a pretzel in front of them. It, it must have been quite a scene. And then he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. He's given a message from God. He's, he's giving God's word to them. And here is what the message is. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And, and he's acting out what the Spirit is telling him about Paul's impending arrest and custody in Jerusalem. He's doing it much like an Old Testament prophet would have done. Uh, many of the Old Testament prophets would act out their messages. Isaiah went around stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign of what Assyria would do to Egyptian and Cushite captives. And he gives this prophecy, and it's, it's a word from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is referred to often in the book of Acts. Paul was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit testified city after city that Paul would suffer and be imprisoned. The Spirit made the Ephesian elders overseers. The believers are receiving revelation from the Spirit regarding Paul in Jerusalem. And these prophecies are happening. Now, just in case you say, well, hey, I would like to get in on that prophecy thing, and I'd love to tie myself up into pretzels and hog tie myself in front of people and act out prophecies from God. That job's already been taken. Uh, that job isn't in effect anymore. So you can't do that. And here's why. You, you need to grasp this. The revealing aspect of prophecy where uh, they, were for, they were telling things that God was giving new revelation closed at the, at the end of the apostolic era with the completion of Scripture. You have to be clear about that. But there is an element where what, what else the prophet did, which was doctrinal, uh, doctrinal instruction and exhortation to believers was taken over by the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers, a la Ephesians chapter 4. And what you'll notice, very notably, in the last letters Paul wrote, what are known as the pastoral epistles, which are dealing largely with church structure, church leadership, and serving, Paul does not refer to prophets at all. At all. In the book of Ephesians, in the letter to the Ephesians, he basically says in chapter 2, verse 20, that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so you don't build a foundation over and over again. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, it says that God gave some as apostles and prophets, and that was done at the end of the apostolic age. And then 
evangelists, shepherds, teachers, which are still in operation in the church today, doing the doctrinal teaching, doing the, the exhortation of believers. And so you'll notice that the lack of a reference to prophets in the pastoral epistles is significant when he's talking about how the church should operate. Moving on to verse 12. When the, when the people, and this includes Luke, because when we heard this, this is one of the we sections of Luke, of Acts, where Luke is with them. He says, when we heard this, we and the people urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So Luke is admitting, I actually told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I heard the, the prophecy, and I'm like, he's going to be imprisoned. So they interpreted that clearly, accurately as truth. He's going to be imprisoned, and then went off script, and in loving concern, told him not to go. And here's Paul's response. Verse 13. How does Paul respond? He says, what? What are you doing? Crying and you're breaking my heart. You are breaking my heart. They, they, the people are deeply upset that Paul is going to be facing persecution in Jerusalem. They're doing their best to dissuade him from going. They're saying, don't go. And Paul is compelled by the Spirit. He's determined to go, but he's affected by what they're telling him. So he says, you're breaking my heart. That's a word that was used for, for women pounding on clothes with stones as they washed them to get them clean at the riverside. It's a strong word. You're like, he's like, you're tearing my heart apart. You're beating up my heart. This is tough. They're trying not to let him go. It's like the disciples telling Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die there for your sins. You want me to go to Jerusalem. And Paul utters words in verse 13 that only someone convinced of the will of God, only someone committed to the will of God would utter. Paul speaks words that only someone who's totally yielded to the Lordship of Christ would say. Here's what he says. I am ready to not only go to prison, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of of the Lord Jesus. Now you might be saying to yourself, uh, that's a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering here in the book of Acts. Well, there are 266 out of 1,007 verses in Acts that are devoted to narrating Paul's imprisonment. Then you got all the other persecution and suffering that were going on in in, in the book of Acts, and you've got a lot of suffering on the part of Christians for the name of Christ. This was before the name of Christ. By the way, in the book of Acts, baptism was done in the name of Christ. Signs and wonders were accomplished in the name of Christ. Healings were affected in the name of Christ. Preaching was done in the name of Christ. And it, all these things were done in the name of Christ. Because his name represents all that he is. This is why we say the book of Acts is Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes. Look at the very beginning of the book says, what I, I recorded first what Jesus began to do and teach. And he's still working in and through his people. And these people are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we've got God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing a lot of things in and through his people. 
Paul's suffering would be for the name of Christ, the name of Jesus, the risen Lord who revealed himself to, to Paul on the road to Damascus, who commissioned him to preach to Gentiles and kings and Jews, chapter 9, verse 5, who showed him right at the beginning of his ministry how much he was going to suffer. Do you remember when Ananias was being instructed to go and help Paul regain his sight? And Ananias was like, I don't know. I've heard a lot about this guy. He's a bad guy, a bad character. And, and God says to him, go because he's a chosen instrument of mine and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Jesus is going to show him how much he would suffer for him. And by the way, this was not payback. This was not payback for Paul persecuting Christians and even cheering on the death of Stephen. Some of you come in here today and you're like, you know, my life has been very sinful and anything bad that comes my way, I deserve it because God deserves to pay me back for how bad I've been. And if that's the way you think, you've got to perish those thoughts because your sin was laid on Jesus Christ at the cross. You're not carrying your sin around saying, wow, who's going to take care of this for me? We call it the finished work of Christ. This is, this is reason to rejoice as believers. If you come in here and say, you know, I, I've, I've got to be so low because I, I, I deserve so much bad stuff because of all the bad stuff I did. You're basically saying the transaction isn't complete. The, the, the sin hasn't been paid for. I've still got to suffer for my sin. Jesus suffered once for all. And when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you couldn't do anything to bring yourself to God or commend yourself to God, what does Ephesians 2 tell us? But God being rich in mercy with the love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. You were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's your testimony if you're a Christian. So please, I, I beg of you, do not keep thinking that somehow God is paying you back for all the bad things you've done. What happens is that when Jesus' followers experience the reality of suffering for the name of Christ, they simultaneously experience the reality of the presence of Christ. Jesus said, I'm going to be with you forever. Any believer who's ready to suffer and die with Christ has the reality of the power of Christ's presence. And here's Paul, a consistency of conviction, uh, a, a, a seriousness about the proclamation of the gospel. He's, he's saying, this is life and death folks, this, this is heaven or hell, I'm going to Jerusalem, and then I'm also going to give the gift to the church that these churches have gathered, because that's important too, we need to care for our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And what you see is that God has commanded Paul to do his will. Paul was commanded to do the will of God, not his own will, not the will of, of others that were coming to him and saying this is what you should do. And so what we see here is that here we have sincere believers that don't have the same idea as to where someone ought to go and, and what they ought to do as they serve Christ. Paul's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're like, you shouldn't go. 
And the first group that tells him not to go, he keeps on going on toward Jerusalem. Now you've got this group in Caesarea, and they're saying, you shouldn't go. Even Luke himself is saying, you shouldn't go. And Paul says, I'm going. I'm going. And what you see in verse 14 is is the believers coming to the same conclusion. Unity in the body of Christ. Since he would not be persuaded... He was going to Jerusalem. He could not be persuaded. He would not be dissuaded. He would not be diverted. He could not be talked out of his clear conviction that this is what he was to do. Because God was leading him. He was not confident in the course of action that would keep him away from Jerusalem. And by the way, the, the word he, they use here that Luke uses, he would not be persuaded. That's the same word in Romans 8 when Paul says, I am persuaded, I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was persuaded about that. He would not be persuaded about not going to Jerusalem. By the way, if you can be diverted from what you think God wants you to do. If you can be dissuaded, if you can be rerouted, maybe you aren't really called to do that. Wouldn't you think? So what they did is they ceased. When he, he wouldn't be persuaded, so we ceased, and, and, he said, and Luke says, we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. We need to talk about the will of God. We need to talk about knowing and, and discerning and, and following the will of God. I want you to know one thing, that God wants you to know his will more than you want to know his will. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. And I want you to know that you will not miss God's plan if your heart is set on pleasing the Lord. Be confident as Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Be confident in the words of Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you're worried about, all these things that you're all tied up in knots about, all these things that you're anxious about will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You've got enough on your plate to worry about today, to to worry about tomorrow. And you also need to know this about the will of God. If the Bible forbids it, you have no business asking for it. You have no business praying for something that the Bible clearly says don't do. There are a lot of Christians wandering around and they've got Bibles in their hands or on their electronic devices and they're saying, I just don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know his will. And they won't crack the book or turn it on and see what it says because this book is chock full, chock full of the will of God for you. By the way, the Bible speaks of the will of God and it would be very easy for us to be very simplistic about it and say, well, there's, there's simple, you know, whatever God wants is going to happen. That could kind of be a defeatist mentality, though. Like, the will of the Lord be done. Well, we're going to throw up our hands and say, well, you know, they don't want to listen to us. They're in God's hands. <laughs> the Bible speaks of the will of God in more than one way. 
There are two, I'm just going to point out two Greek words, boule and philema. And boule has its roots in an ancient verb that really means rational and conscious desire. As opposed to thelema, meaning an impulsive or unconscious desire. But here's the interesting thing. As the Greek language developed, uh, the words became, became used synonymously. And so it doesn't help us so much except for this. In the New Testament, boule usually refers to a plan based on careful deliberation, most often used of the counsel of God. Indicating God's providential plan. Indicating his predetermined, inflexible plan that mankind cannot thwart. Luke is very fond of using it in this way. We read it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, Peter's preaching this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, boule, and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's the, the resolute decree of God that no human action can set aside. It's God's plan, God's will that is unalterable. But then you come to the word thelema, which is used in a similar way. It has a diversity of meanings. It could mean that which is agreeable, that which is desired, that which is intended, that which is chosen. But also it can refer to that which is commanded. And this is where we want to, 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 to think along these lines because I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about the will of God amongst a lot of the people of God. And they think it's all about just being resigned to whatever happens will happen because God has already decreed it to happen. Because there is his sovereign decreed will that will happen, and there is, there is his sovereignly commanded will that may or may not be done by his creatures, which the Bible is chock full of, by the way. But the question for us now as we look in this passage is, which will was the church referring to in verse 14? Was it God's sovereign will or God's commanded will? Because it's going to make a difference in the way we think about the will of God as we walk out these doors today. So you want to know why. You want to know what they're talking about. When the church was saying, the will of the Lord be done, were they just throwing up their hands and saying, Paul won't listen to us, so whatever happens, happens. He's on his own. I don't believe they were saying that. I believe what the church was saying was this. Let Paul go to Jerusalem and obey God. This is the commanded will of God. God, the Holy Spirit, had told him very clearly, you're going, and this is what's going to happen. But the people had to be very careful, like we must, to not let their God-given care and love and concern for Paul's well-being override God-given conviction and confidence and, and command. The will of the Lord is not them throwing up their hands and saying, we have no idea what's going on and we'll just leave it to God. They are basically confidently declaring, we know this is the will of God. Paul is going to Jerusalem and we're good with it because God has made it clear to us. That's a confident assertion of the will of God. They wanted Paul to obey the commanded will of God, just like we should all want to obey the commanded will of God. And again, the Bible is very chock full of a very clear revelation of the will of God. Look what happens in verse 15. After these things, we got ready and went to Jerusalem. Who? 
Luke and all the other people that were telling Paul not to go got ready. And this term getting ready is a big word. It means saddling up and packing all the horses for a trip. It's like we're going on a 64-mile journey, people, to Jerusalem on horseback or donkey back or however they were going to get there. They've been on the sea. Now they're going on the land. And it says in verse 16, even some of the disciples from Caesarea where they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem, they went with us too. So do you see what the church said? This is the will of God. We're going with him. They came to the house of Nason, of Cyprus, an early disciple. They stayed at his house, an early disciple, uh, possibly one of the people who followed Christ during his earthly ministry, possibly one who'd been maybe one of the 120 in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, or maybe one of the early converts from the apostles preaching in Jerusalem. This was someone who became a believer early on, one of the first disciples, and they went with Paul. I don't know about you, but it excites me for what God might want to do through his church even today, because it's not like, oh, well, we know, by the way, we know that the sovereign will of God will be done, but when we're praying the Lord's prayer, and we're saying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, We're not just saying that his sovereign will will be done, but we're also saying, Lord, give us strength. Give us substance. Give us sincerity to to obey what you've clearly shown us in your strength and for your glory. By the way, what's the commanded will of God for you? Let me point out a couple things before we close. First and foremost, God's will for you is that you would be saved, that you would believe in the Lord Jesus, that you're commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus. John 20, verse 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's the will of God for you to be saved. It's the will of God for you to believe. By the way, Billy Graham, he's 98 years old now. He's still alive. And when he was 95, he made a video basically to tell the world, what he's been telling the world for umpteen years. He said, the cross demands a new lifestyle of all of us, and that every part of our being is infected by the disease of sin. And there's no other way of salvation but through the cross of Jesus Christ, and that through Jesus Christ, is the only way you can be saved, because he is the way and the truth and the life. By the way, we will ultimately, we will all ultimately say God's will be done. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But if you're not a believer today, you want to come to believe in him now. By the way, God's will for you is that you would be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Not, not, can't get clearer than that. God's will for you is that you would rejoice always and pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will for you is to do good, which causes you to be a witness in the world. 1 Peter 2, 15, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. But don't let your freedom be a covering for evil. Do the commanded will of God. God's will for you is for you to have perseverance, that you would be steadfast and endure 
and receive his promises. Hebrews 10, 36. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. God's will for you is that you be led by the Spirit of God and not yield to the flesh. Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Your Bible is chock full of the commanded will of God that you cannot do in your own strength, but you must do in his strength and for his glory. But what about all those unknown things you walked in the room with today? I don't know where my job's gonna come from. I don't know who I'm gonna marry. I don't know where I should live. I don't know what I'm going to do. You have all these unknown things. Let me just say, if you're saved and therefore spirit-filled, you're, you're being sanctified, you're submissive to God, you're, you're suffering for Christ, you're, you're, you're thankful for everything he is doing and what he has done and what he has allowed in your life, then do you know what God's will is for you? Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Do you like that? Do whatever you want. Just go and do whatever you want. And you might be saying, well, are you joking no. It, Psalm 37 verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You delight yourself in God. He is your delight. You want his will from your heart. You're doing all those things that he commands in the word, in his strength. Then he's going to give you the desires that are in line with his desires. Some of the reason why so many Christians are so confused is because they're not doing the revealed will of God. They will ignore all that the Bible says and go search for the hidden things and the hidden things belong to God. He's not going to give you that hidden stuff. Our problem is we say we want the will of God until we find out how much it's going to cost us. And that's where the Lordship of Christ comes in. Jesus Christ is Lord over all because he is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. God rules over all things, but by his providential care, his control, Christ rules over all. And by the way, he has every detail of space and time covered. Every sparrow, every hair on your head, every atom. So we're in Sweetwater, Tennessee, and we're at the Lost Sea, and we get to the bottom, we get to the place that they're taking us to show us, and all of a sudden, the guide tells everyone, turn out all the lights, and I'm seriously getting nervous. It's a pitch black mass of nothingness. Not, I can't see my hand in front of me, and I'm seriously, I'm, I'm honest, seriously afraid. And then I remember, hey, my kids are standing right next to me, and they're having a good time, and my wife's there with me. And my in-laws are there with me. And there's all these other families there too. And I, I hadn't heard any news about people, you know, dying down in the lost sea. But I had to trust that when the light shone, I would see the way clearly. I turned back the lights and we were able to walk out of there. Yes, I was walking quicker on the way out. Saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, Jesus Christ, John 1 tells us, is the true light coming into the world that enlightens every person. Meaning if you come to faith in Christ, you, you're gonna be able to see where you were blind before. And, and, it, and by the way, if you're in the dark today and you're saying, 
I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm in the dark. Then set your heart on doing the commanded will of God and don't ask for the hidden things. Just do what God has told you to do. Because the Lordship of Christ must drive you're seeking the will of God. The Lordship of Christ. Colossians 1 tells us that Paul rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of Christ's body, the church, and rejoiced in the mystery long hidden but now revealed, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says that we're rescued and delivered and transferred to the kingdom of his son, of Christ. We have forgiveness in Christ. And why? Why? Because of because Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the supreme focus. In macro, he's the creator that deserves to be worshipped by all his creation, to be glorified. In micro, he's head of the church, and we are to yield to the leader of the church, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And very personally, he is the firstborn from the dead. He is resurrected, and our life in Christ is also resurrected because Jesus is our predecessor in terms of victory over sin. So therefore, we can be fixed and focused on Christ and be busy with him. So again, if you're one of those people that says today, you know, God can't use me anymore. I'm disqualified. Let me just say, seriously, it doesn't matter how bad your life has been. Give your failures to God through repentance. He will open the way. If you say, God is fed up with me, he has lost patience with me. Please remember that he is not like us. He is not like a human being. He does not hold a grudge. His love for us is everlasting, and his salvation is complete, and you are secure in him if you are in him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that our sanctification, our survival, even the suffering we'll go through as believers never depends on us, but on, on you, Jesus on our hero. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to yield to your lordship and obey your commanded will so that we would be pleasing to you and serve your purposes in our generation. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.